It was at the peak of his popularity among the masses when a great crowd gathered about Jesus there by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And earlier in his ministry, maybe just a few months prior, when the vast multitudes of Galilee had come to him, Jesus had ascended onto a mountain and preached a sermon in clear and straightforward prose. And at the conclusion of that famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records that the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. But this time was different. This time when the crowds pressed in upon him, Jesus got into a small boat and pushed a little bit away from the shore and he sat down and as the whole crowd stood there upon the beach, he began to speak to them in parables. One right after another, describing what the kingdom of heaven is like. One parable in particular dealt with the coming harvest. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in the gathering of the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of the harvest, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The disciples were perplexed by this change in teaching style, and so they asked him privately, Master, why do you speak in parables? Jesus' response is somewhat cryptic, and it points to the depths of divine sovereignty. He told them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears for they hear. Well, evidently the disciples were not seeing and hearing clearly, for when the crowds had departed that day and they were gathered together in a house, they asked Jesus for an explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Jesus obliged. Matthew 13 and verse 37. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace." 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The parable of the wheat and the tares is a sweeping vision of this age. Encompassing the entirety of the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming. During this age, Jesus is sowing the good seed throughout his field, which is the world. He is planting Christians in abundance in every tribe and tongue and people and nation. But throughout this age, Satan has been hard at work as well, as we have seen in Revelation 12 and 13. Satan has been sowing weeds, counterfeit wheat. They look just alike from the outside, sowing them throughout the world. And now, the field is full of both wheat and tares, followers of the Lamb and followers of the beast, those who bear the name of Christ and His Father, and those who bear the mark of the beast and worship His image. And though it is His field by rights, And he has every right to pluck out each and every weed at any time that he likes. In his divine wisdom and mercy, and for the sake of the unripened wheat, and the wheat yet to be sown, Jesus waits until the time of the harvest at the end of the age. Dennis Johnson, one commentator on the book of Revelation, writes, Quote, Jesus came to inaugurate the long-awaited kingdom of God, not as a grim reaper, but as a patient planter. But the day of harvest is coming. Matthew 24, Jesus says, They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send forth His angels with a loud call of the trumpet, And they will gather his elect, his wheat, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And the wheat will be gathered into the barn, the sons of God gathered into the everlasting kingdom, but the weeds, the sons of the evil one, the followers of the beast, they will be cut down, they will be gathered up, and they will be thrown into the fiery furnace." Then, says Jesus, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of my Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The Apostle John was there that day when Jesus spoke that parable by the Sea of Galilee. And he was there that evening in the house when Jesus explained the parable. And I can't help but wonder if 60 years later when John is on the Isle of Patmos as he watched the seventh and final symbolic history that spans Revelation 12 to 14, as he watched it unfold before his eyes, if his mind did not invariably go back to the parable of the wheat and the weeds and the harvest of the Son of Man. I mean, how could it not? For in Revelation 14, 14 to 20, John sees in graphic detail the harvest of which Jesus spoke at the end of the age. Every element of the parable in Matthew 13 is here in Revelation 14. There's the Son of Man. There's the angelic reapers. 
There's the wheat, the sons of the kingdom. There are the weeds, the sons of the evil one. They're pictured here as grapes for reasons that will be clear momentarily. There's the final judgment. There's everlasting reward on the one hand and there's everlasting punishment on the other. Revelation 14, 14 to 20 is the harvest at the end of the age, the harvest of which Jesus spoke. And so the call for attentive wisdom is the same now, today, as it was then. He, you, who have ears to hear, pay fervent attention to this message. This is an urgent and necessary and imminent message for you. There's a reason why you're here this morning. There's a message from the Lord for you. And we pray that God would grant you ears to hear it and a heart to heed it. Before we begin to unpack this text, the one question, one interpretive question needs to be answered. And I debated in my office this morning whether to just slice this section out of my sermon, and I decided against it. And here's why. Many of you have study Bibles, and that's good. It's good to have study Bibles. But they don't all agree, and they don't all agree with me in the way I'm going to approach this passage. And so some of you, when you're looking down and and, and you see something different from what I'm going to tell you, I want to explain why I deviated from some people's views and why I hold to the other view of this passage. So just give me about five minutes of your time, and then we'll jump into the text. The question is, does this passage describe two harvests, a harvest of the righteous and a harvest of the wicked, or just one harvest described in two different ways? First as grain and then as grapes. Well, we know that there's two harvests being described here because, and that the first is a harvest of grain or wheat because the word that is used there for ripe, look at it at the end of verse 15. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. That's a word which means dried out. So it can't be talking about grapes, because when grapes become ripe, they're not dried out. Wheat is dried out when it's ready. It's no longer green. It's ready to be harvested. But there's a different word in verse 18. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. For its grapes are, there's that word again, ripe, but it's a different word in the Greek. This word means ready to burst, full of liquid, full of juice, and refers to grapes. So there are definitely two pictures, two different pictures of harvest. One, a wheat harvest, and the other, a grape harvest. But do they refer to two different harvests or to the same harvest spoken of in two different ways? In the end, the issue is of no great interpretive consequence, but it makes a difference to the way we're going to divide up this passage. I have five commentaries that I'm consulting on our journey through Revelation, and three go one way, and two go the other. Those who believe that all of 14, 14 to 20, describes the final judgment of the wicked, same harvest described in two different ways, they'll point to the fact that the image of a grain and grape harvest are drawn from Joel chapter 3, verse 13, and are placed together. That verse says this. The Lord's speaking. He says, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. 
and the parallel structure of that verse makes it clear that both the harvest of the wheat, put in your sickle, and the harvest of the grapes refers to the same harvest because, the reason given, their evil is great. And the entire context of that verse in Joel 3 is of the Lord's judgment of the nations. In addition, the use of the phrase there in Revelation 14, 15, the hour to reap has come, leads some to believe that the grain and grape harvest both belong to the harvest of the wicked because that word hour, when it appears in Revelation, only ever refers to the hour of judgment. So some people looking at that evidence, they say, Revelation 14, 14 to 20, all of it is just referring to the harvest of the wicked and of their judgment at the end of the age. I'm not so sure. On the other hand, there are those who believe that the grain harvest, 14 to 16, refers to the harvest of the righteous. The grape harvest, 17 to 20, refers to the harvest of the wicked. This is my view. And I hold this view for, for one main reason. In the Gospels, there are two times when the judgment at the end of the age is spoken of in terms of a harvest. And both times, it involves a reaping of the righteous and a reaping of the wicked. We already observed the parable of the wheat and the tares. Jesus says, Matthew 13, 30, Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles, throw them in the furnace, then gather the wheat into the barn. So we're gathering the the wicked, then we're gathering the righteous. John the Baptist uses the same imagery in Matthew chapter 3 when he's testifying about Jesus before the the Pharisees and the scribes. He says to them, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. Okay, What's he going to do when he comes in for the harvest? He's going to gather his wheat into the barn And he's going to take the chaff, and he's going to burn it with unquenchable fire. Righteous barn, wicked fire. And I think that's what we have in Revelation 14, 14 to 20, with slightly different symbols, but still the image of the harvest. The believers, the righteous, the followers of the Lamb are represented as grain that are harvested, and it's implied, gathered into the barn Two, as Jesus says in Matthew 13, to shine like the sun in the kingdom of my Father. The unbelievers, the wicked, the followers of the beast are represented as grapes that are harvested, thrown into the winepress of the wrath of God, and are trodden down in judgment. I could be wrong, but that's the way we're going to approach the text this morning. So if your study Bibles have something different, that's why I'm going this way. Let Dennis Johnson speak one more time, then we'll jump in. He says this, quote, The end of history, therefore, will bring not only a great grain harvest, as the saving sweep of Christ's sickle harvests his faithful followers, but also a grape harvest, as Christ's enemies are gathered to be crushed in the winepress of God's wrath, end quote. And so my aim this morning is to warn you about the grape harvest and to win you over to the harvest of the grain. That's my aim. Let's look at verse 14. We'll begin with the harvest of the grain who represent the righteous, the believing, the followers of the Lamb. 
Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. So the first image that catches John's attention is a white cloud, and one seated upon this white cloud who is wearing a golden crown upon his head and has a sharp sickle in his hand. That's that long pole with the curved blade, a sharp sickle in his hand. And John identifies this figure as one like a son of man, which ought to ring alarm bells in your head. Ding, 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 ding. We've seen that phrase before. We saw it in Revelation 1.13 in the opening vision of Revelation. When John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and upon turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. And who does he see? He sees Jesus. Now that phrase is an allusion, allusion, to a very important Old Testament text that you ought to have highlighted in your Bible and memorized. It's Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Daniel 7, you remember, provides the foundation for much of what we read in Revelation. In Daniel 7, Daniel sees four beasts emerge from the sea, and those four beasts represent kings and kingdoms that will arise to conquer the world and make war upon the saints. And he sees a vision of an ancient of days, the ancient of days, who's sitting upon a throne awaiting the hour of judgment. But then he sees something else. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve or worship him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed speaking of the coming messiah and we don't hear anything else about this son of man figure in the old testament until until jesus comes until the time when jesus arrives on the scene of redemptive history son of man became his favorite way of identifying himself. In fact, says New Testament scholar George Eldon Ladd, it is the only title he freely used, being found on his lips over 65 times in the Gospels, the most significant of which comes in Matthew 24, 29, which has significance for our text today in Revelation 14. Jesus standing there on the Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem, talking to his disciples about the tribulation of this age and his coming at the end of the age, he culminates that that discourse by saying this, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man, listen, coming on the clouds 
of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. It sounds like a harvest that the Son of Man inaugurates as he comes on a cloud. It sounds like exactly what we're looking at in Revelation 14. The Son of Man, who is Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you a summary of what we're seeing. It's on the back of your bulletin. I'll give it to you twice and read slowly so you can fill in the blanks. I know some of you get upset if I move on past and you don't get that blank filled in. I'm not making fun of you. I'm just like you. That would drive me nuts. The Son of Man, who is Jesus Christ, having died for sins and risen again on the third day, He ascended to the right hand of the Father, Acts 1-9, from whom He received all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28-18. He received an everlasting kingdom like we read in Daniel 7, an inheritance of nations. And there He has remained for 2,000 years, ruling and sustaining all things by the word of His power from His heavenly throne, And building his kingdom, sowing wheat seeds in every nation of the earth, building his kingdom by the word and the spirit through the faithful witness of his church until that day known only to the Father when he shall return to this earth in the same manner in which he departed. You remember that verse in Acts 1.11? The disciples are there and they watch Jesus ascend up through the clouds and they're all standing there on top of the mountain like this, and suddenly there's angels that appear next to them, and they're looking. They said, why do you stand looking up in the air? The same Jesus you saw ascend will in like manner descend, that is, on the clouds, to gather his elect with, like wheat and trample the wicked like grapes. That's what's happening in Revelation 14. Now, Some are troubled by the fact that the angel tells the Son of Man to put in his sickle and reap, as if the angel's telling Jesus what to do. I don't think that's what's happening here, and I don't think that's reason to interpret one like a Son of Man as another angel. Some of you may have that in your study Bibles. No, this is Jesus. It's clearly Jesus. One like a Son of Man is code language in the Bible for Jesus. And angels don't issue commands to Jesus. You'll notice in angel, in the angel in verse 15 comes out of the heavenly temple where the ancient of days sits upon his throne. And so the angel is merely conveying a message from the throne of God, from the Father, that the hour of the harvest has come. This is a picture of that submission of the Son to the Father. Just what Jesus said when, he, when the disciples asked him when these things would be. And he said, Concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not the angels of heaven, not even the Son, but the Father alone. There will come a day when the Father says, Son, it's time, and then he'll come. So there is coming a day when the Son of Man will return to earth on the clouds of heaven, when the wheat which he has sown are ripe for the harvest, when the last name that was written in the book of life of the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world, when the last name comes to faith, 
Then the Son of Man will put his sickle to the stalks. The grain will be separated from the chaff and gathered into the barn. And on that day, Jesus said, the righteous, my people, they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of my Father. The question I would ask of you is, will you be among them? Come back to that. Ask yourself that question. Are you in verses 14 to 16? Or are you in verses 17 to 20? It's an important, important question. And I'll return to it. Let's move on. Verse 17, the harvest of the grapes which represent the wicked. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So there's another side to the harvest at the end of the age. And it is terrifying. It is the harvest of the wicked, of the unbelieving. And it's represented here as a grape harvest. And the reason why the symbols change from grain to grapes, I think, is threefold. Number one, it signifies that the object of the harvest has changed. We're no longer harvesting the the believing righteous. We're, We're harvesting the unbelieving wicked. Second, John has already used the image of a wine press to denote the wrath of God. In chapter 14 and verse 10. And so to change from grain to grapes allows him to continue that image which he'll continue to bring in throughout the remaining chapters of Revelation. But there's a third reason. You see, in addition to Joel 3.13, which serves as a general backdrop for this entire passage, there's there's another Old Testament text that that we need to have in in our tool belt if we're to rightly understand this passage. And it comes from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 63. Speaking of the end of the age, the Lord is pictured as a harvester returning from the land of Edom in red stained garments. It's a very vivid picture. And and the prophet enters into something of a poetic dialogue with the Lord. Isaiah says, who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. The Lord answers, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Isaiah asks, why is your apparel red and your garments like him who treads in the winepress? The Lord says, I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. It's so vivid. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. You've got to ask yourself, why? Why does he use such violent image and symbolism to denote the coming judgment? It is to warn you, 
to terrify you, to cause you to tremble, tremble, to cause you to flee for refuge to Jesus. So the image of the judgment as a grape harvest and wine presser, well established in the Old Testament prophets. All right, I want, I want to make a few notes from, from this section, explain some symbols, and then I want, to, I want to apply this text to your minds and your hearts. So let me make a few notes. Number one, the angel which came out from the altar, who has authority over the fire, is probably, you may want to jot this down, it's probably a reference back to the angel of Revelation 8, verses 3 to 5, who was there offering incense before the throne of God, mingled with the prayers of the saints. And then he took from the altar fire and he put it in a censer and he hurled it down to the earth and his hurling of the fire down to the earth became the seven judgments, the seven trumpet judgments. So fire frequently being a symbol of divine judgment, this probably serves to heighten the sense of divine judgment in this passage. It's coming from the throne. The angel with the sharp sickle cuts down the grapes from the vines of the earth and he gathers them in a great winepress of the wrath of God where they are trodden outside the city. So I want you to picture this. In biblical times, and actually until fairly recently, a winepress would have been a large trough. And so people would go out into the vineyards, they would cut off these clusters of grapes, they would come and, and, and drop their bushels into the trough, and then servants, the, the, the vine workers, they would, they would roll their garments up, take their sandals off, and they would literally just tramp them down until all of the grapes were squished. And there would be a, a duct that would run from the bottom of the wine press into a trough that was lower down, utilizing gravity, and all of the juice would flow into the trough and all of the remnants of the grapes would remain in the wine press. That's the image that's being used here. In Isaiah 63, it's the Lord who's trampling down the grapes. And his garments are crimson, not with juice, but with blood. In Revelation 19.15, it's the Lord Jesus who returns to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And John says this will take place outside the city. What city? The New Jerusalem. Why does it take place outside the New Jerusalem? Ah, Revelation 21-27 says nothing unclean will ever enter into the New Jerusalem. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Robert Mounts points out that outside the city calls to mind Hebrews 13, 12, the place where Jesus suffered. You remember that passage? Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And then the author of Hebrews calls all of us to go out to him outside the city, bearing his reproach. And so Mount says this, those who refuse the first judgment the judgment in, in which God poured out his wrath upon Jesus must take part in the second judgment when God will pour out his wrath upon sinners. It's an ironic turn of events, isn't it? Christ suffered outside the city. All who desire salvation must go out to him, bearing his reproach. But on the last day, those who did not flee this present city, the city of destruction, the city of man, those who did not go outside the city to Jesus, they will be excluded from the city to come, and outside the city, they will be trampled down. 
Finally, when the grapes, the wicked, are, are trodden down in the winepress of God's fierce wrath, it says the blood flows out as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. This is hyperbole. It is an incredibly violent symbol which serves to heighten just what is at stake in this harvest. Horse's bridle, 1,600 stadia, which equates, a stadia is about 185 meters, 607 feet. 1,600 equates to about 184 miles, roughly the length of Israel from Tyre down to the border of Egypt. Here's what he's saying. When I return in judgment upon the wicked, I will fill the land with their blood. Jesus concluded his explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares with this exhortation. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Which is another way of saying, pay attention if you can. I find it interesting that Jesus said that when he was in the house alone with his disciples, not when he spoke the parable to the crowds. Likewise, I would tell you that the visions that we, of Revelation, the vision that we've just unpacked, it's not first for the world, it's first for the church. So how should you hear this message today? If indeed God has granted you ears to hear. You should hear today two things. Number one, you should hear that it is appointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. You should hear in this text two certainties which face you, death and judgment. For everyone here, no matter your age, two things are true. There will come a day when your present life will end, either terminated by death or the return of Christ. That is true of every person here. Second thing that is true of every person here is, upon death or the return of Christ, at the end of the age, you will stand before God in judgment. So a message dealing with death and judgment has immediate relevance for every person here, no matter your state, no matter your condition, no matter your age. So listen up. Children, kids, look up here. Look up from whatever you're doing, coloring, playing, sleeping. Whatever you're doing, look up here. It is never, never too early to consider what happens after you die. You, sh- you realize by now, it, you don't have to live long, and you realize by now that people don't live forever. Maybe you've had a great grandma or a great grandpa who has died and, and you can't go visit them anymore. They're no longer here on this earth. And you probably at that time asked a question, where is Great grandpa, or where is great grandma? Where are they? That's good. That's a good question to ask. You ask your parents that question. You ask your parents on the way home from church this afternoon, ask them. Tell them, I, I told them, I told you you could. You ask them, what happens when people die? 
and you ask them how you can go to heaven to be with Jesus. You don't have to be afraid to die if you know and love and believe in Jesus with all your heart. So here's, kids, here's how you should respond to this message. Ask some questions of your parents and seek Jesus. Love him. Learn to know him. Learn to love him. Learn to worship him. Learn to do what he says. Come to Awana. Let us teach you about him. You're not too young. You're not too young. Teenagers, give me your attention. It is rare for people your age to think about eternal realities. It's rare. Of all the people in this room, you live the most reckless and carefree existence. And that's not totally bad. That's why you can do things that the rest of us can't anymore because we're too cautious. But it also creates a problem. You see, also of all the people in this room, you tend to give no thought to tomorrow. You live for the excitement of the now. And that double-edged sword of living in the now, living recklessly, carelessly, on the edge of a knife, that has caused a number of students, and you have seen them here in Nixa, that has caused a number of students to enter into an early grave. You're not too young to settle what's going to happen with you after you die. You think about it. I remember being 19 years old, and I was driving my stuff back up to college. 19 years old. I just dropped my stuff off at Landon Dorm at Southwest Baptist University, and I'm driving back, and I'm listening to, to music on the radio, not just sort of in highway hypnosis, and, and Highway 13 is a divided four-lane highway coming up, and there was an elderly woman in a big old car, much bigger and stronger than mine was, and she hadn't crossed the median to turn left. She had turned left into oncoming traffic into me. And so I almost had a head-on collision going about 65 miles per hour that I missed just by about that much would have ended up in a ditch and very likely would have woken up in hell. Every time you get behind the wheel of a car or in the passenger seat of another teenager's car, you're just a hair's breadth away from eternity. You think and you turn to Christ. Adults, in the prime of your life, you, we, we're like Martha, aren't we? You remember what Jesus said about Martha? That Martha, Martha, you are anxious about many things. Yes, Lord, right? Family, jobs, homes, loans, kids, transportation. How am I going to get my kids to school and pick them up on time? I got meetings. All of these things are concerning, concerning your mind and clouding and pressing in and demanding your attention. But listen, don't be deceived into thinking that any of those things is more important than what happens to you when you take your last breath. Better to lose your house, your job, your kids, than your soul. 
So whatever it is that you brought in this morning worrying about, you set that aside and you pay attention to this. Seniors. Grayheads. You know, I hope you know, I love you. I love you. I love our Tuesday mornings. I love spending time with you. I love you. And there's no one else in this congregation for which the certainties of death and judgment are more pressing. And you know that. Every ache, every pain, every medication that you take is a gracious reminder from God to tend to the matter of your immortal soul. Which side of the harvest are you on? Settle it. Because the time of the harvest for you in particular, but for all of us, is at hand. Settle it. How? Here's the second thing you ought to get out of this passage. There is a refuge for sinners from the coming wrath. 2,000 years ago, God sent His only begotten Son into the world to save sinners and to transform them into saints. To save grapes and transform them into grain. And here's how He did it. He sent His Son to die. And at the cross... Jesus trod down his son in the winepress of the fury of his wrath for believing sinners like us. What you see pictured here in, in, in Revelation 14, 19, and 20, in the case of those who believe, has already happened, but not in us, in Jesus at the cross. So for those who will hide themselves in Christ, there remains no more wrath None. And if you will flee from the city of man, the city of destruction, and if you will go outside the city where Christ suffered and died once for all in the place of sinners, and if you, with empty hands, not bringing anything, I'm not bringing my works, I'm not bringing my merit, I'm not bringing my own perceived value, my goodness, my righteousness, I'm not bringing anything, and if you will cling to the cross of Jesus Christ, you will be gathered on the last day by the angels of Christ as the elect of God and gathered into the kingdom of his Father where you will shine like the sun. No more wrath. So that's, that, that is the choice that is laid before every person, seniors, adults, teenagers, children. Wrath to come or wrath absorbed in Christ. And I plead with you on the authority of Jesus in this word Choose the cross, cling to it by faith, and your sins will be remitted, already having been punished in Jesus, and when Christ descends on the clouds with power and great glory, and all the tribes of the earth are weeping because they have spurned him and rejected him, you will shout with joy, and you will rise to meet him in the air. I lay the choice before you. Choose life. Our Father. Again, I pray for that weight and heaviness to rest. And 
to drive us to Christ. Bring sinners to Jesus. And if that's you, if you're here, you don't know which side of the harvest you're on, you're scared, it's good. That means you're not numb to conviction. It's good, it's mercy. You flee to Jesus by faith. Confess your sins to him. Cry out to him. Cling to him with, with even the weak and trembling fingers of a faulty faith. Just cling to him with everything that you've got and ask God for more strength to cling to him tighter. You just cling to Jesus, confess your sins, and rest, rest in his finished atonement. Lord, I pray that you'll bring in a harvest today before the harvest at the end of the age. I ask in Christ's name.